recognizing that a passage like this is far beyond all of our comprehension. It reveals so much about your plan and your Messiah and who we are and what we need. Father, I pray that everyone in this room today will get a clear glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they will see who they are and how much they need Him. Oh, Father, please work through us. Show us Your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we've come to the passage that I have been longing to preach for some time now. I've read ahead and sometimes it works out that I uh, end up studying the passages weeks before I even get there. And so as I'm thinking on it and how it fits with the previous passage and how it all works together, I'm I'm like uh, walking up on the mountain and seeing the glory of God as Moses did and I can't wait to get down from the mountain and share with you the glory that is revealed in this passage. Uh, I'm also convinced that a passage like this, if we just put this up on social media, just put the, the passage itself just like that. We just posted Matthew 15, 21 to 28. We just put it out there. <laughs> Do you understand that they would kill Jesus again? Our society cannot handle this passage. This is countercultural in every single stretch of the word. You're going to see it. It's mind-boggling how much this goes against the way our world thinks. And sadly, even how we sometimes think. If you're not convicted by the end of this message, you have missed an amazing passage. I've been crawling around for the last couple of weeks thinking on it. You're looking at a dog. Last week we saw the religious hypocrites were confronted. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and scribes that had come down from Jerusalem to condemn him and his disciples, for not following their man-made traditions, their religion, their man-made religion. Jesus revealed to us last week that a relationship with the Lord is about our heart more than external religious acts. If you go to church, or you take communion, or you eat certain things, or don't drink certain things, drink certain things, that doesn't determine the condition of your heart. Our hearts are what make us all needy sinners. 
We can clean up the outside of our lives, but what goes on in our hearts is ultimately why Jesus had to come and die for us. So our setting is, after being confronted by the Pharisees over by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus retreats to a desolate place. Notice in Matthew 15, 21, it states, Jesus, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So where is this? To give you a little heads up on where it is, it's, he was here in this area ministering around the Sea of Galilee and Tyre and Sidon are way up here. So this area right here is where he was focused. He moves from here up to there, and he couldn't go just straight, by the way. There's a bunch of mountains. He would have had, it would have been a good day's journey at least. It's 40 miles that he flees or retreats from the Galilean area to the area of Tyre and Sidon. And this area would be mostly Gentiles. He'd be away from the Jewish people completely. Matter of fact, as we see in the parallel account in Mark chapter 7, it states, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet, he could not escape notice. So he leaves the Jewish area and goes to an area and to retreat, to get away, to isolate, for lack of a better term. Jesus was again not revealing to himself to his people. He had stopped for a time. Was this part of his judgment on them for rejecting him for their man-made religion? Remember, he had just confronted them, confronted Pharisees from there, that had said, your disciples are unclean and you're leading them the wrong way in effect. So again, they were questioning who he was. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So it would make sense that, okay, I'm going to go. Just like he had done before, he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from him. Now he goes to a whole different area. In an area that wasn't Jewish. Predominantly Jewish. It was predominantly Gentile. This is very, very intriguing. When he gets there... He goes into a house and he doesn't want anybody to know about it. Yet, he could not escape their notice. Today, a very likely, unlikely rather, an unlikely character shows up on the scene. This lady, this Canaanite lady, this Seraphonician lady shows up and wants to talk to Jesus and needs help. So today what we're going to see in our passage, and this is the main idea of the passage, if you don't get anything else, this is the idea. Humble commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is where hope is found. Humble commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is where hope is found. In a world that is desperate in need of hope, there is one place we go, and it is Jesus Christ. We don't go to people. We don't go to politics. We don't pay. go to anything like that. We go to Jesus Christ. And it requires a humble commitment that is far beyond anything we can even comprehend. 
It needs, we need grace in order to have this kind of humble commitment. You'll see it as we go along. We're going to examine the three primary characters as we make our way down through this passage. The three primary characters that we will examine are the Canaanite woman herself. She's also called a Seraphonician woman because she's from the area of Tyre and Sidon. It was a Phoenician area, so it's both of those. A Canaanite woman. If you all know anything about the Canaanites, these were the people that inhabited the promised land, right? And God had told Israel to go in and get rid of all the Canaanites, right? But they had not gotten rid of all of them, and there are Canaanites. There are Canaanites still around. And she was one of them. She was from that area. There's also the weak disciples. We say the weak disciples because y'all all know that we've seen that the, that Peter got out of the boat, but his faith was little. Weak faith, right? And we've seen this as a theme that's been going through that the disciples followed Jesus, but their following of Jesus was weak at best. They were constantly falling and stumbling and bumbling and often following after the wrong thoughts and focused on self more than on Christ. And then finally we'll see the wise Lord. The wise Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. We will examine each of these characters as we make our way through the events. I admit, though, this passage is, even though it's only eight verses, it reads like a suspense novel. It really does. If you put yourself in the shoes of this lady agonizing for her daughter. I don't know about you. You can't wait to get to verse 28. You just are, okay, let's get to the end. Let's get to the end. Let's get to the end. It builds and builds and builds. And I'm telling you, if verse 28 wasn't there, it would be like a cliffhanger. You'd be like, it can't end that way. Give it to me. She's healed, right? Come on, she's got to be healed. (laughs) We can't wait to get to the end. But we must walk slowly through this passage so you can really get what's being said in this passage. You've got to get it. There are huge implications that are revealed in this distressing progression of events that we must take note of. So we will trace these primary characters down through the passage. The passage breaks down into six sub-scenes or sub-sections. you got the humble pursuit, then the first denial. And I put the denial, I didn't put the denial in quotes, but it should be in quotes. Denial. Is it a denial? Is it a rejection? Is it a stop? We'll talk about that as we go along. The humble pursuit, the first denial in verses 23 and 24. The humble pursuit again, the second denial in verse 26. The humble pursuit again in verse 27. And then finally, the rescue. So let's see how humble commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is where our hope is found. The Syrophoenician woman displays a humble dependence on the Lord that we should all desire to have. And let's start with this first stage of her humble pursuit of the Lord. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. It states, And a Canaanite woman 
from the region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Our character study begins with this Canaanite woman. In Matthew's highly Jewish-focused gospel account, we know that, right? Matthew is writing, writing most likely to a Jewish audience, calling them to believe in their Messiah. The appearance of this Canaanite lady and him recording these events would have been a little surprising for those original readers. The original readers of Matthew's gospel accounts were most likely Jewish. And where does Jesus go? He goes to a non-Jewish area and is met by a Canaanite woman. Now do you understand? For a Jewish person to hear that, it would be like, Oh no, the Canaanites? Those ones God told us to eliminate and get rid of? The Canaanites? You can see. As those original readers would read Matthew's account, it must have jumped off the page. The whole gospel is primarily focused on Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah of Israel. So like Matthew 8, with the centurion who sought Jesus' help in healing his servant, this was a twist most Jews didn't see coming from their Messiah. But again, don't you remember the centurion? They even said, well, he's kind to our nation, so go ahead and help him out. This one's totally different. This is a Canaanite woman. She is, for lack of a better term, what? An enemy. Enemies of Israel. People we should what? Hate. Despise, in their view, in their tradition, in their culture. She was a despised woman. But the narrative itself shows how this was not an expected encounter. It even shows it. The desperation of the lady's circumstances are clear from the beginning, isn't it? You see her desperation. She finds out Jesus is in her area and she comes out to him. She sought Jesus and was crying out. This could be translated, crying out continuously. She was begging Him over and over and over and over, crying out loudly, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Saying that over and over and over. Probably different ways, but saying the same idea. Have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. It'd get annoying a little bit, wouldn't it? Here is this Canaanite woman crying out continuously with desperation. Have mercy on me. Her identification of Jesus is shocking. I'm telling you, it is shocking. The clarity and theology and doctrine that this woman has is far superior than most of American evangelicalism. She knew Jesus better than most of American Christians. And she knew Jesus better than all of the Jews, almost, of her day. How do you say that? Well, look at it. First, she identifies him as Lord. 
A title of deity. Alluding to his deity. Second, she calls Jesus the son of David. The son of David? How is that a part of the gospel presentation? How is that part of who Jesus is? Oh, don't you remember Romans chapter 1? That's what Paul says. That is the gospel concerning his son. Born of David. The son of David. That is the promised king in the line of David. He's a descendant of David, of Judah. This is a pagan. This is a Canaanite. How does she know he's Lord and son of David? She gets it better than the Pharisees that were just there accusing him. This was a a title of messianic ramifications. She identifies his deity and his human role from the very beginning. The Jewish people didn't get this. But this pagan lady knew the Old Testament better than the Jewish people. She wasn't even in the primary place of Jewish teaching. She was in a Canaanite area in Tyre and Sidon. But she identifies Jesus perfectly. She had a right view of Jesus, didn't she? Third, notice she petitioned Jesus for something only God incarnate could give. She says, have mercy on me. Have pity. Have compassion on my daughter. Fourth, she acknowledged Jesus' lordship over the demonic world. Now, this is again profound. Because she goes to Jesus and says what? You are Lord. You are the son of David. You can give me mercy. And you can deliver my daughter from demon possession. Which means she's saying he's sovereign over what? The whole spiritual demonic realm. She gets him, doesn't she? She understands who he is much better than all these people that he's been talking to. Everywhere he went, the Pharisees were the opposite. She knew who he was. And she petitioned him as the Lord incarnate that he is. Beloved, this first point is absolutely crucial for understanding the rest of this passage properly. The Syrophoenician woman truly knew who Jesus was and this caused her to seek him for hope in the midst of her circumstances. She knew who he was and she sought him. One of our biggest problems we have in this world when temptation and difficulties and challenges come into our way is we attempt to endure trials with incorrect views of the sovereign lordship of Christ. At the heart of our complaints and our murmuring when difficulties come into our lives is a wrong view of God. It's a wrong view of Christ's lordship. We don't see Him as the Lord. We don't see Him as the promised Messiah. We don't see Him as the compassionate and merciful Savior. We think when trials come into our lives, we can make it. It's all about our choices and our control. And what we do. If we do think of God in difficulties, we also doubt whether He's able to help us or whether He even cares for us. 
We see our trials and our circumstances are more important than the Lord, and therefore we seek to fix our problems instead of humbly come to God. Right? We wouldn't be running out there. When our trials and our difficulties come, we don't throw ourselves into prayer. We often do, what can I do to fix this? Right? Folks, the Jesus of the Bible, however, is sovereign over all things. The Son of David should be enough to make us humbly approach Him always. At the same time, notice the lady was broken and greatly concerned for her daughter. She knew the demonic possession was a cruel position to be in. She was willing to approach the Jewish Messiah for her for help, despite her lack of a proper relationship with him being a Canaanite. Do you understand? This is, for lack of a better term, it would be culturally crazy for her to even come up to him. If she knew the Jews, and she did know the Jews, she knew the Old Testament Scriptures, she would say, there is no way I can go talk to him. There's just no way. This guy's here, and I'm here. I'm a low-class citizen, not worthy of even approaching this guy. And on top of that, I'm a Canaanite. And they wanted us dead. And they want us out of their land. I'm not going to this guy! If she thought culturally... Is she thought the way the world thought. But her desire for her daughter's deliverance humbled her. And she says, I need Christ. I need this Lord to fix the situation. I can't do this. Only He is sovereign over these things. Already, don't you want to be like this lady? I want to be like her. Jesus was in a pagan area seeking a secluded place. And it intrigues me that this is the only healing by Jesus recorded in this land. The only one. Jesus was a day's journey away from the primary residence of the place. He goes to this one area and the only recorded miracle is this one thing. One thing. But as we will see, he met in this pagan land this woman who was different than many he encountered among his own people. The disciples were obviously, what were they doing? Our third group. They were watching. All of these events unfold with intrigue. And it seems as though a little bit of irritation, a little bit of frustration. This scene is very similar to Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, isn't it? You remember? They marveled that he was even talking to a Samaritan woman. So the first stage of this story was the well-informed Canaanite woman approaches Jesus in desperation. Notice, second, the first denial. The first denial. Now, it's actually two denials in here. We'll see them as we go along. The first denial. Look at these words. Do not they scream off the page at us? Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came 
and implored him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I confess this story is shocking, isn't it? I mean, if you're not shocked by now, you're not getting the point of the guy, of this passage. You should be going, did you see what Jesus just did? And what those disciples just said? Notice first, the merciful Savior appears to ignore the woman. He ignored her. Oh boy. That wouldn't win over any feminist, would it? But he did not answer her a word. Remember, she was continuously crying out in desperation. She was a lady in desperate need of help, wasn't she? And Jesus doesn't even respond to her. This is the first shocking detail. (laughs) We would expect the merciful Savior to immediately take notice of the woman and heal her. That's what we would expect as we're reading through the gospel accounts. What happens every time he gets off the boat? They were there waiting for him with a crowd of people that needed to be healed, and he healed them all. Isn't that what happens? Y'all tell me. Haven't we saw that all the way through Matthew? Every time he gets off a boat or gets into a new area, there's a crowd of people, I need help, heal me. And he goes, you're healed. And he heals them all. Here? He ignores her. Not a word. Jesus denies her, and I say that cautiously, denies her with silence. Then look at the disciples' response. (laughs) If by the end you're not blown up, your brain doesn't just explode, you're not following along. Because this should make you go. This should be better than any football game you've ever watched in your life. This thing is unbelievable. Look at the disciples. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away! (laughs) Because she keeps shouting at us. It's almost comical to a degree. I'm sorry, I almost want to laugh. Why? I mean, this is the, the least politically correct thing that the disciples could say. Correct? Send her away! Get rid of that woman! Just get rid of her! She's shouting, she's annoying us! Are the disciples getting it? No, they're still clueless. They are absolutely clueless. I think they're regenerate and they know that Jesus is Lord, but they're like seeing through like dark glasses, barely can see anything. Some speculate that the disciples were insinuating heal her Daughter and send her away. There is no evidence of that in the text at all. None. 
That's just some people reading their culture and their day into the passage, trying to do what? Make it not quite as bad. Those disciples aren't really as big a jerks as they (laughs) appear to be in here. That's what they're trying to do. I'm being honest. It's ironic that the disciples appeared to fear what the Pharisees thought in the previous section in 1512, but then when this Gentile woman was humbly seeking help, they sought, to, they sought Jesus to send her away because she's annoying us. Remember, they told in the previous section about the Pharisees, what did they say? You know you offended the Pharisees? Almost like, hey dude, you know, you're talking bad about those religious dudes. They're going to get mad at us. Or you. Here, a woman that really needs help, they say, send her away. Send her away. Because she's annoying us. You know, the disciples were very much more like the self-righteous Pharisees than they should have been, shouldn't they? They knew Jesus, but they viewed themselves much higher than they should have. But notice Jesus' response to the disciples' request carried forward this surprising narrative. Look what he says. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it's important to note Jesus is not being sarcastic here, beloved. He's not. He's not writing a Babylon Bee. Okay? He is being absolutely serious. He had a mission. God had sent him to the nation of Israel. He was the Messiah of Israel first. He was sent by God to rescue the lost sheep of Israel. He was fulfilling exactly what the Father had told him to do. And this lady was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite. A plain and simple reading of this might suggest Jesus was prejudiced. He was all about his own. Not the rest of the world? You! Now you're really getting into the weeds. You need to jump out, Pastor Mike. Read it. Again, this seems shocking and contradictory to what many of us have heard and read in our Bibles. Jesus had come to save the Jews only? What? This can't be. What about us? What about us pig-eating Gentiles? I'm closer related to the Canaanite than I am the Jews. Are we less than the Lord's primary focus? It's at this point we should all be confronted with our high view of self if you thought that. What? (laughs) Think for a second. I think this message is one every one of us should think on for many hours for the next couple weeks. 
We live in a society that says that we all deserve to be treated exactly the same. Is that not what we were told? We all deserve to be equal. God isn't allowed to play favorites, right? Yet here Jesus says his focus at that time was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Obviously, implied was, I'm not here for the lost Canaanite woman and her daughter right now. Jesus would have been absolutely destroyed politically correct and by the politically correct world of our day, wouldn't he? But Jesus wasn't concerned with what the world thought. He was concerned about the heart. And he was on a mission to fulfill all that God had said and promised about the Messiah of Israel. So who should we relate to in this story? The fact is, almost everyone in the room is closer to the Canaanite woman than the disciples or Jesus. Just being honest. You better see yourself in the Canaanite woman. If not, you've missed the whole point of the story. We may act like the disciples, but we were all born outside the people of Israel. The vast majority of us are not Jews. I, don't, I only know of one of us in the room that has Jewish roots. In fact, if we... Well, I guess the children of that one... Okay. In fact, if we were in the exact same place at the same time, guess what? Jesus would have responded to us the same way he did to the Canaanite woman. Maybe. Would we have even come out there to him? Only if grace was working, right? The vast majority of us aren't Jews here. In fact, if we were in the exact same place, we would reject him. We are not from Tyre and Sidon, but we also are not Jewish or physical descendants of Abraham. Think about this for a second. What if you cried out in your prayers to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Heal me. Forgive my sins. Save me from my certain judgment. And the Lord said, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. Thus, by implication, I'm not here for you. What would be your response? Now, is this a true implication from his statement by saying this? Well, this is a yes and a no. This is one that we're going to have to think through as we go through the passage. But I, I have to admit, you, if you're not paying attention today and you're not really focused, you're going to lose it. Because, But this is building the whole way, and I'm trying to help you walk into it. You're going to get it. Just hang in there. It's going to take some discipline to pay attention. Stay with me. Remember, Jesus is all-knowing. He knew he would interact with this woman in this area before he even arrived there. He also knew how she would respond. His statement was true. Jesus was there for the Jew first. But the Gentiles also would be blessed by him at the end after he had died and rose from the dead. 
However, his primary mission initially was to come for the Jews. That's what God had said. You know, I think one of the reasons people believe in, I know, here we go, deep, big word, replacement theology. Replacement theology. The theology that says the church has replaced Israel is because they have a hard time with God favoring one people group over another. They do. It's not fair in our view for Jesus to come first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Us Gentiles get the leftovers. That's not fair. I want a T-bone steak. I don't want any crumbs. I deserve a a T-bone steak. Not crumbs. Why do we have a problem with this? Ultimately, it's because we think we deserve to be first, or at least equal, to others who get saved. This could not be further from the truth. Friends, a high view of ourselves is the root of much of our problems in this world. We end up being more like the Pharisees than this poor Canaanite woman. We end up being like the self-righteous that think, Hey, you came for me. But wait, isn't this woman just like the Jewish women? Why do the Jews get offended at Jesus first and the world second? Why is it that the Jew first, then the Gentiles, ultimately... Because this was God's plan. This is how God did it. What does Paul say? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He says it. Why is it this way? Read Romans 9 to 11. It will give you the answer. Beloved, we must think properly about who God is and who we are. Jesus is Lord, not us. No one in the room deserves to be chosen. Do you understand? No one in the room deserves to be healed. No one. Jesus is Lord, not us. Jesus can choose to save millions of Americans or none. And guess what? That's good. That's fine. Jesus can choose to save some Russians or none. Africans or none. He can do it. Jesus is Lord, not us. And in fact, that He chooses to help anyone is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. None of us deserve to be saved. Do you understand? And if you think you do, you don't know the gospel. At this point, one might expect this poor Canaanite lady... To walk away saying, being sad or infuriated. If we didn't have the rest of the story, what would happen in our society if, if Jesus said something like this? Ignored her and then said, they would walk away infuriated, angry. This guy is a... And call him a name. But look what she does. She humbly pursues him more. But she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. <laughs> what? When somebody is rejected or ignored, we often get mad and storm off, don't we? 
Let's be honest. We get angry at the person who doesn't treat us fairly in our view. We often retaliate with calling them offensive names. In our society, Jesus would have been called a racist. He would have at this point. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You racist? You're only about your people? Wouldn't he be called that? Tell me if I'm wrong. But look how this woman responds. It's shocking. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Where is your self-respect, lady? Is what our culture would say. Instead, she doubles down in her pursuit of the Lord. She came to Jesus and begged him, bowing down. The little translation of this is, she came and was prostrating herself before him in worship. Continuously. The Greek word here for bow down means to express in an attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on and submission to the authority figure. I could see her just literally laying face down before him. In reverence. The woman is ignored. This woman, the disciples, is then told, the disciples say, send her away. The woman's told she's not the priority of the Messiah at this time. And she responds with worship. What? Worship. And begs Jesus, Lord, help me. This lady has no shame. Our society would have said, get up, woman. What are you doing? Why are you bowing down? Why are you bowing down to this man? Why are you bowing down to this racist man? That's what our society would have said. Wouldn't it? Am I wrong? It's what the world says. You're better than this. You deserve to be heard just as much as the Jews do. So why does she respond this way? She knew something that most of the world doesn't. Jesus Christ is Lord God Almighty in the flesh. And He alone is free to save and deliver whomever He chooses. We see again, this woman knew God better than 99.9% of the world. And I'm afraid to say, she knew Him better than I knew Him before I started this passage. And I've been preaching for 20 years. This is breathtaking. This is literally breathtaking. And a response only gets better in the next scene. And I'm going to keep going, so y'all just hold your horses. Here we go. Friends, we can learn a lot from this woman. 
She gets it. She's a sinner and not worthy of anything good. She knows Jesus is Lord and He alone is sovereign over the demonic world. And I'm awestruck by her. If we had one millionth of the faith of this woman, we could turn this world upside down for Christ. But we think way too high of ourselves. Way too high of ourselves and way too little of Christ Jesus the Lord. So what would be the response we would expect from Jesus when this lady bowed herself down? Okay, it's time, right? Isn't it time to say, get up, you're healed? Okay, you've shown some faith. It's time, right? Look at the second denial. Oh man, it gets more. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, now you've lost your mind. This is crazy insanity. If you're thinking worldly. What our culture would expect and demand is the opposite of what Jesus does. So Jesus not only doesn't submit to her request to help, He takes up another level of argument against it. It's not good, worthy of praise, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Who is Jesus implying are the children? The Jews? The lost sheep of the house of Israel that he was there? The sick? 1524? The Jewish people. What is the bread? It's the healing help that he was there to give out. It was the deliverance that he was there to do and give. Who are the dogs? The Gentiles. And this Canaanite woman in specifics. So Jesus not only said, I'm prioritizing my own people above you, and ignored her first, ignored her first, then said, I'm prioritizing my people over you. Second, last, third, you're a dog. He compares her to a house dog. Ah, can you believe this? Listen, friends. Dogs were not considered near as valuable as they are in our day, as back then. I went to Myanmar. It was more like that. Yes, you would have occasional pets that were dogs in Myanmar, but they looked skinny, very skinny. Matter of fact, some people called them rodents. Why? They starved them. They got the last of the last of the last. Of the food. Why? Because people were more valuable than dogs. Dogs could be pets, but they weren't considered even close to one's children. So Jesus says in effect to this woman, Ma'am, you're not only one of my people, you're not one of my people. In fact, You are comparable to a dog. 
this is tandem. I, I should just stop here. We'll come back next week. What do you say? Boy, would that be a cliffhanger. I bet everybody would go home and study, wouldn't you? <laughs> give me the answer, give me the answer, give me the answer. Help, help, help. Was Jesus insulting the lady? I don't believe so. But I do think he was pointing to the distinction God had established. National Israel, as, he, as we've seen in our Old Testament reading, even in this morning's Zechariah passage, National Israel was the apple of God's eye and God's eye in the future. This Zechariah 2 is talking about future. He's going to restore national Israel. It's going to happen. And even in the end, as Zechariah prophesied, there were promised blessings for Israel in Jerusalem. Zion! By the way, we aren't Zion. That's replacement of theology. And nations, distinction, will come and worship. And who are those? That's us. We're going to praise Him. The dogs are coming to the worship service. Praise God, right? I got another chapter, by the way, in my book. I'm really a dog. Are you? I'm one of the master's dogs. And I'm good with it. I'm really good with it. Israel is the bullseye of God's target of deliverance, but many of us also will be saved. Praise God. Romans 11 states it very clearly. We're in the age of the Gentiles until that great awakening when Israel, all Israel at that time, will be saved. God chose Israel as a nation, not Esau. Here, Jesus is pointing to the special love God has for His children Israel. This is not because they deserve it, but because God's independent free will choice. Why did Jesus shut her down? He had healed Gentiles before, hadn't He? The centurion that we mentioned. I believe Jesus was demonstrating what He wanted the disciples to see and understand. He wanted them to know He was the Messiah of Israel. He wanted them to know that He was the Son of David, that He was the Lord, and that He was the way of salvation for the Jews first and also for the Gentiles. And all of this was set up perfectly to show exactly God's priorities. This is how God did it. He wanted the disciples to trust and pursue Him like this lady was. Read your Bibles. He was revealing amazing faith in this woman. And this was a test to the lady to demonstrate the amazing grace of God working in her to show it off. So Jesus compares this dog after ignoring her, compares the woman to a dog after ignoring her first and then implying that she wasn't one of the lost sheep of Israel. It would have made perfect sense if this lady would have bowed her head and walked away sad, correct? It would have made sense for her to get up off the ground and say, okay, I got it. I'm a dog. I got it. I'm not Israel 
And your first priority is to come for Israel at this time. But what did she do? Look at it. (laughs) Oh, look at this. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Oh, my. How many of you have ever called yourself a dog? Compared yourself to a dog? Said, yeah, I'm worse than a dog. Again, her affirmation of Jesus' lordship has been repeated three times. Lord, Lord, Lord. She knows he's Lord and she is his creation. Yet her wisdom here is mind-boggling. She doesn't argue against her being like a dog. In fact, she doesn't argue that the first in line should be hers. In fact, she states, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Brothers and sisters, this humility is opposite from anything we see in this world. It is opposite. This is what... But this is what we know who Jesus really is. If we get it, this is how we should view Him and how we should view ourselves. When our theology is right, our hearts will respond appropriately. When we really get who God is and how big He is and who we are and how we really aren't that great... We will respond with faith. Great faith. The mantra of our day is we are all image bearers. Right? You've heard it. How many of you have heard that? We're all image bearers. Uh, Mark, one of our... I almost said a name. Not supposed to. A politician. It's a Catholic. Said we are all image bearers. Just recently. Is that true? Yes, that is true. We are image bearers. Was that Canaanite woman an image bearer? Notice her petition wasn't, yes, but I'm an image bearer. I'm an image bearer. Because see, there's more to it than image bearer. Listen closely, beloved. We are also fallen wicked sinners. After He made us in His image, we rebelled against Him and our hearts are ugly. They're sinful and we think we're better than Him. And we think we deserve salvation and that is a lie from the pit of hell. We deserve to rot in hell. I do. I'm an image bearer. But I'm a wicked, wretched sinner apart from Him. This Canaanite got it. Do you? We're fallen. 
We're totally depraved. We deserve His judgment. And my problems in this world don't deserve to be fixed. I should be in hell right now for eternity. And you should too. Dogs are too good for us. Dogs are better than me. They just put up with the curse and groan for it at the end. Oh boy. Now you've stepped in it. Being called or compared to a dog is a compliment if we understand things biblically. This wasn't an insult. What? I'm going to end there. Did you get it? This wasn't an insult. And he says, your faith is great. Wow. Let's pray. Oh, Father. My heart just is at once explode. You are so far beyond anything I can think of. You are so big, so holy, so amazing, so glorious. And I'm worse than a dog. I haven't lived for you every second of the day as I should because you created me. I'm an image bearer because you created me and yet here I am. I'm the sinner. I'm undone. Woe is me as the prophet Isaiah states. I am an unclean man and I live amongst people that are unclean. We are all wretched sinners apart from your grace and we do not deserve salvation we do not deserve to be delivered from the sin that we have done against you we deserve your judgment oh god have mercy on us please save god it is only through jesus christ death burial resurrection that we have any hope We trust in Him alone. We are the sinners. You are the Savior. You came to save sinners like us. And we just want crumbs from our Master's table. Help us, God. Help us, God, to serve you much of Jesus Christ 
and little of ourselves. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.